The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Let me invite you to grab a copy of God's Word there in front of you or nearby you. If you need a copy of the Scriptures, reach for one in the pew rack. We're opening up to Genesis chapter 30 uh, today. Genesis 30, uh, as we continue to see uh, the life of Jacob. And as you're turning to Genesis 30, I'm just going to give you a, a warning ahead of time. Our passage is a strange one, uh, but passages like this are, are why we should love the Bible so much. Our passage is a strange one. Uh, but in as much as it is strange, the point is also very clear. So it's wonderful at the same time. Uh, we have been in uh, recent weeks and months following the life of Jacob, who's the third generation patriarch, through his various struggles, and quite frankly, he's had his share of them, to be sure. Uh, and many of them have been as a result of his own doing. And it's oftentimes in our case as well, that we get ourselves in situations that very much are our fault. But we also find ourselves sometimes in situations in which uh, other people are acting against us or sinning against us. Well, Jacob is finding himself in both of those types of scenarios here where the life that he has lived has largely been a life of deception. And the Lord has been trying to correct him and, and discipline him and change him into the man that God is calling him to be. Uh, both as he turns Jacob around from his former ways of deception and as he experiences other people deceiving him so that Jacob can learn that this is no way to live. Jacob is in the big picture learning to trust the Lord and embrace the covenant, which means Jacob is needing to learn to trust God and embrace God to be his God which means learning to walk in his ways. These stories, as we've been looking through the book of Genesis, have been all about God's care for Jacob, even in ways that Jacob doesn't understand. God is caring for Jacob in ways that Jacob can't quite put together at this point. Uh, and that's also true for us as well, that God cares for us in ways that are imperceptible to us. That we don't see how the pieces fit together in the midst of them, yet God is at work. That's a very important lesson that we learn from the Scriptures. And Jacob is learning that lesson that you and I need to continue to learn as well. A truth about God that we've already sung about this morning. To all life thou givest, to both great and small, in all life thou livest, the true life of all. We blossom and flourish as leaves on a tree and wither and perish, but not changeth thee. That God in His unchanging kindness and mercy is never, ever, ever unfaithful. And we are the ones that have to learn to trust Him. Not that He is in any respect untrustworthy or has done anything ever by which we could accuse Him of being unfaithful because He is never unfaithful and He never changes in His unfailing faithfulness. And we're the ones that have to learn again and again and again and again, that his ways are good and he's worth trusting. But sometimes that comes at the end of a hard season. So we're going to see that in Jacob's life so we can learn that lesson as well. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks here and is recorded for us in the Scriptures. Lord, we believe that your word is truth and that here you reveal not just information 
or information about yourself, but rather your very self to us as a faithful God. So Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and plant your word deeply within our hearts that we might bear fruit to the glory of your faithful name, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear God's word, Genesis 30 at verse 25 through the end of the chapter, under the heading Jacob's Prosperity, this is the word of God. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when I shall... But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later. When you come to look into my wages with you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus, the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. So may He write His truth on our hearts today. As I said, strange passage to be sure, uh, but as simple actually as it is strange. So how do we get from here uh, to there? How do we connect what this passage is saying uh, to the Lord Jesus and the good news of the gospel. Well, I want you to think about the Old Testament in this way, that especially the book of Genesis itself, before it's recorded by Moses, is that these stories 
uh, were oral stories passed down from one generation or to the next. And this is happening in the life of Jacob. And we saw previously in, in this chapter that uh, Jacob's last son, so far that we know, is named Joseph. And Joseph is going to go on to have two sons named Ephraim and Manasseh. And I want you to just imagine for a moment uh, uh, little Ephraim and Manasseh, whose father was Joseph, saying, Dad, can you take us to Grandpa? Because we want to hear that story about Laban and the flocks. We want to hear that story again. It's a good one. Can you imagine then uh, they would hear the story? Papa Jacob, tell us again how that happened. Tell us again what you did and tell us again what the Lord did for you in this marvelous way that God keeps His promises to Jacob and Jacob triumphs over Laban's scheming. Papa Jacob, tell us again. Well, we want to hear the story now ourselves. Jacob is here in a difficult situation. He is essentially a prisoner of his father-in-law, Laban. Jacob has no resources of his own, no possibility of providing for his own household, or no prospects of returning home. And it was always his intention to leave his homeland, come to Laban's homeland, find a wife, and then go home. But he's since been essentially trapped at Laban's household for some 14 years. So Jacob's in a tough spot. No resources, no ability to return home. And friends, let me just say very clearly... These are the types of places where God loves to work. When His people are otherwise weak, helpless, out of their own resources, and unable to figure it out for themselves. Now listen, we would prefer that God would work out of our strength and our abundance. We would prefer that God would work in such a way that we would be able to accomplish and achieve and see our own way through. But you and I both know what would happen if that would happen. Then we would say, look what I did. Look what I was able to do. Look at how I navigated the complexity of that situation and saw my way out. If God worked that way, we would certainly take credit for it. But this is why God oftentimes moves in mysterious ways because very oftentimes when we have come to the end of ourselves, it's then we turn to the Lord and find that He is not just a helper, but the only Savior that there is. And sometimes we have to learn those lessons the hard way. And that's true of Jacob here. So these are the details of what's happening as Jacob finds himself essentially a prisoner of Laban's household. It's Jacob's plan to part ways from Laban and he has a wager with Laban, a plan with Laban. He says, look, let's, let's divide these flocks. And Jacob's plan to divide the flocks comes by way of this obvious indicator. You see there the details in verse 32 and following. He says, look, the spotted sheep and goats and the black lambs, I'll take those and you can have the rest. He's essentially, he's asking for the runs of the litter is what's happening. And normally, culturally, in this situation, a normal arrangement because uh, someone who owned a flock and a shepherd who was in their employment, that if they were going to separate out and the shepherd was going to have a portion, that culturally, usually the arrangement would be something like 20%. The shepherd could go off, hang out their own shingle, and take 20% of the flock off on their own. But in this situation, Jacob is offering Laban a scenario in which there is no way he would walk away with 20% because, again, these are just the abnormal animals, the runs of the litter. So Laban knows that he has the upper hand here. Jacob says, listen, my father-in-law, you give me these and I'll go. And Laban says, fine. Now notice the details then of what follows in verse 35 and verse 36, that even though Laban, the great deceiver, even though Laban knows he has the upper hand, 
he still goes ahead in verse 35 and 36, separates all the animals that would have been Jacob's, sends them off with his other sons three days away. And so the swindler, Laban, already had the advantage, but then he goes even further to guarantee that everything would fall out his way. So that if Jacob would end up with nothing, Laban would say, I didn't do you wrong. You got what you asked for. There's just none left. This is the scenario. So, of course, to this, Jacob has a plan. You see that plan unfolding in verse 37 and verse 39, and this is where I acknowledge this section gets quite strange. Now, I will not pretend that this text is principally about animal husbandry or a biblical commentary on the practice of animal husbandry, but in this culture, it was common practice to believe that you could make prenatal impressions upon unborn animals, uh, uh, and, and this would affect the animal born later. A prenatal impression. Now, to be clear, this is just popular superstition, but Jacob, no doubt, having been raised in herdsmanship, uh, working in the business of the fields, uh, believed that he could make an impression upon animals who then would give birth to animals who reflected that impression, since the stripes and the shadows and the spots, etc., now, there's no substance to this whatsoever. Hear me say that very clearly. There is no substance to this whatsoever. But to Jacob, if he's able to manipulate the strongest of Laban's herds and breed them in this fashion in front of these designs, then it would produce the striped and spotted offspring. And if I haven't already said it clearly enough, the Bible doesn't teach this as a manual of animal husbandry by any sense whatsoever. It describes the practice... And the Bible quite oftentimes reports things without approving of them. Because let's be clear, the fact that spotted and striped animals are born by way of this is not because of these sticks. Right? I mean, you know that. You're sensible people. It has nothing to do with these sticks and poplar, etc., right? You see these details in verse 37. Jacob took the fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them. And if animals breed in front of these sticks, then they'll produce striped offspring. It's not the sticks, friends. Who is the one that does this? God Himself. God Himself is able to bring forth from these animals the kinds of animals that Jacob has bartered for with Laban. God Himself, God who Psalm 50 says owns the cattle on a thousand hills, can bring forth animal offspring to favor Jacob's arrangement despite Laban stacking the deck against him. Why? Why? Because it is God's purpose to bless Jacob. And God will see to it that His purposes are accomplished even if Jacob thinks that it's by this strange, ancient, Near Eastern cultural mechanism of breeding animals. But it's not that. It's God Himself. It is God Himself. Notice that Jacob still has a bit of scheme in himself here, doesn't he too? But he will come to learn that it's God that blesses him and brings forth these striped and spots animals, not his scheming. God Himself. 
Now what comes of this is that Jacob's division ends up being some, not just meager 20%, but actually so much so that verse 43 describes, there in verse 43, that Jacob increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. This is a meteoric financial rise for Jacob's situation is what verse 43 is saying. From having nothing and being at the mercy of Laban to growing so large that not only does he have flocks in accord with the arrangement, but also donkeys, camels, camels, which would have been at this time where in the ancient Near East you don't have domesticated camels, the equivalent of having a fleet of Aston Martins and Maseratis. That's what it's saying about Jacob. That's how well Jacob is at the end of this chapter comparatively to how poor he was at the beginning. And the point is, now Jacob, now Jacob has the resources to stand on his own. Now Jacob has the resources to come out from underneath Laban and return home. So this strange episode of breeding animals is actually all about God fulfilling his promises to Jacob, which if you remember back in chapter 28, God said to Jacob, Jacob, wherever you go, I'll go with you. And however far you go, I'll be there too. I'll be with you to bless you. I will protect you and I will bring you back home. Is what God said to Jacob. But Jacob found himself at the beginning of chapter 30, far away from home, subject to his father-in-law with no resources. And then at the end of chapter 30, you find him in a totally drastic different financial situation, able to come out. Why? Because... God is true to His Word because God is fulfilling His promises. This chapter is not about breeding animals. It's about God fulfilling His promises to His covenant people and preparing Jacob to be the heir of the covenant so that Jacob will learn to trust in the Lord and not lean on his own understanding. And isn't that always the point? That's always the point. As you navigate sometimes these complex and strange and unique stories of the Old Testament, the point is always God saying to His people, you can trust me, you know. My ways are good. And this is the application for us to be sure, isn't it? That whatever life scenario or circumstance you find yourself in, whatever is going on in your home and in your household, in your life, in your family's life, in your children's life, amongst your work life, whatever the case might be, that the Lord is working out His purposes for you even in the midst of situations perhaps that you would rather not be in. And as you try to peer through the fog of all of it and put the pieces together, you're saying, I don't see how this fits. In fact, it doesn't fit to such a degree that I would rather it not be the case at all. I don't want to have to figure out how the pieces go together because I don't want the pieces to be there, period, right, we might say. And although it may not be presently clear, God is always saying, you know, you can trust me. And all of my ways are good. And we must learn to receive from the Father's hand with full trust that everything, and especially the things that are difficult, are intended to do us good ultimately. You may not see any possible way that good can come from one particular scenario, but what these biblical stories shout out by way of God's providence is, trust me and watch me work. 
Trust me and lean upon my ways rather than your understanding. Trust me. Watch me work. Walk in obedience and leave the results to me. Let me say it as clear as I can. Let God be God. Why? Because He's better at it than you are. He's been doing it longer than you may have been trying to do it. In fact, God has been God for how long? Before He even invented time. He is the Creator of time. You may have been around the block a few times and know some things, but God has been God for all eternity. I mean before that because He is from everlasting and to everlasting. Let God be God. Trust Him and let Him work out His purposes. But if you stand back from what's going on in this story, Genesis 30, this very strange story, it's that simple point for sure that God is about the business of fulfilling His promises. Not just the promises to Jacob from Genesis 28, but if you scan out even further than that, God is about the business of fulfilling the ultimate promise in the Scriptures. Because that's what the whole Bible is about. Because the world that God made and humanity with it is a world that is corrupted and fallen under the curse of sin. And in the midst of the burden of the curse of sin is that great, wonderful promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3.15. In the midst of the burden of bearing the curse, God says that there will be enmity, strife, struggle between the serpent, the deceiver, and the seed of the woman. That the woman will bear forth a seed and the seed of that woman will struggle with the serpent, struggle with the deceiver. That's talking about God's promise of a covenant line and a child to be born way down the line to come. And in their strife, Genesis 3.15 says, the deceiver is going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. The deceiver is going to make life difficult for the seed of the woman. The deceiver is going to make life difficult for the covenant people of God through scheming and lying, just like Laban is doing to Jacob. Making his life difficult. Making his life full of strife by way of deception. But God's purpose is that the seed of the woman would triumph over the deceiver. In the words of Genesis 3.15, you shall bruise his heel, but he shall crush your head. The story of the drama of redemption in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the promise of the seed of the woman bearing forth one to bring destruction to the deceiver, deceiver and rescue the people of God once for all time. That is the great promise of Scripture. The promise of a deliverer. The one who appears, who is of course the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Genesis 30, Jesus' appearing is way yet to the future, isn't it? To be sure. But the line of the covenant, the seed of the woman, has to be preserved, has to be maintained, has to be protected. And God's promise is that He would fulfill His Word and protect and bless His people even as the deceiver attempts to continuously and again strike the heel of His people. But God is going to work out His purposes to preserve and fulfill His promises as He moves in accord with His sovereign will and His wonderful grace. That's what everything in the Bible is ultimately about. Genesis 30. The whole thing, actually. 
God's promise to bring a deliverer to redeem His people. But the reason why it's hard to see is that so oftentimes it looks kind of silly. It looks rather foolish. And it looks quite weak, actually. It looks like archaic animal husbandry that we laugh at today. But it is, in fact, the wisdom of God. Remember, God works when and how He does in such a way to confound the world's wisdom. And that's how the Gospel works. That's how God works. And this is why when a man who dies on a cross, who is not just any man, but the God-man, and he prays, Father, forgive them, it doesn't look like victory. It looks like defeat. It looks like a pathetic loss. And it is the greatest picture of the wisdom of God on display that the world says, that's foolish. It doesn't make any sense. But it is the wisdom of God on display. And that's why the world looks on and says, this is foolish. But that's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. God does what He does when and by the means that He chooses in order to confound our sensibilities when we so often think that we have the resources to solve our own problems. He sends His Son to the cross in order to uh, uh, disenfranchise us from the notion that we can handle it ourselves. So that what looks like foolishness is in the eyes of the world is actually the wisdom of God. Again, this is how the Gospel works. And if you want more proof than that, you look down there at that table. Because there you see a vivid picture of Gospel grace. Just tiny pieces of bread. And tiny little cups. Unimpressive. Uh, common, ordinary to be sure, but, but also lovingly prepared by the hands of your elders to be the means of grace to strengthen and bless and nourish you. And look, if someone were to pop in here today and read this and they would say, you call that a supper? That's, that's not supper. That's foolish. Right? But for those who believe the bread and the cup we take by faith is the spiritual union with Christ Himself. It looks foolish. It looks as foolish as 21st century eyes reading about stripes of poplar wood breeding animals. But it's the wisdom and power of God on display to accomplish His purposes. The Lord's Supper is a marvelous thing, isn't it? It's one of the things that we do most regularly as a church because you hear preaching every Sunday, but always on a different text. And we sing hymns every Sunday, but always different hymns. But regularly on the first Sunday of the month and sometimes on special occasions, you have this table set before you and an invitation to come. Month after month and year after year because it's just like children, little Manasseh and Ephraim, who say, Papa Jacob... Tell us the story about how you got away from Laban. Tell us that story again. And just like children, the Gospel says to us, this is the story of Jesus. Again and again and again. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me 
This I know, for the Lord's Supper tells me so. Outwardly common, outwardly ordinary, outwardly unimpressive, but spiritually, the means of confirming God's gospel grace to you. What a Savior. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you today for your word and for your truth and for passages that appear on the surface strange but point us beautifully to the gospel truth. Lord, would you please bless your people today by your word and prepare our hearts to be strengthened by the means of grace prepared for us at the supper. Lord, magnify the grace of Jesus to us and confirm again the story of Jesus to our needy hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.